people need to understand that their chart will be the only uh, record of the uh, transaction. And if it internally is not consistent with the disposition, you'll be reading it at the deposition. What do you need to know from the emergency department today? The guys who do that, I always have great admiration for it. Hey, it's Rick Bicotta. With me, Greg Henry, and our special guest, Amal Matu, who's going to be talking with us for the January issue of Risk Management Monthly, coming to you live. Greg's in uh, Ann Arbor, and Amal's in um, Annapolis, I believe. Annapolis, Maryland, that's right. That's right. We're really thrilled to have you with us, Amal. I I think that few people would uh, not know your name in emergency medicine, and you are doctor cardiology and i think it was really interesting when you got out of your residency and started looking around and said what is going to be my niche and you carved a niche and you basically became the dominant cardiology emergency medicine physician and you've done a fabulous job everybody thinks the world of you you want every freaking educational award possible and then some <laughs> and and we're just humbly happy to have you we're not worthy, sir. We're just not worthy. You, you guys have, have created a path for me, so I, I can't take as much credit as you're giving me. So it's an, it's a niche that I largely fell into, yeah. and uh, I, I've, I've really enjoyed it. But there, there's a lot of other people who came before me who kind of blazed a trail for me. So I, I'm very grateful to all of those people. Well, you know, I really thought it was kind of neat the way physicians would uh, find a niche like uh, Dave Talon became an infectious disease doctor for our specialty, and and uh, there's some critical care doctors that are uh, become the guys in in our specialty. And so, uh, and you know, during this pandemic, you watch who is on television talking to the people. A lot of those doctors are emergency doctors. Yes. We've had a tremendous amount of visibility as a result of what's going on for better and better or for worse. Well, yeah. as we're doing the January issue and people are sticking their arms out and getting shots <laughs> up and down the country. In fact, it seems like there is no news on TV in the last few weeks. It's just politicians getting shots in their arms, uh, telling them how, how little it hurts and all that kind of stuff and how it's going to be just fine. Bottom line is we're still a ways from having this under control. And um, Michigan is highly variable. I mean, we have plenty of places where people aren't going to emergency departments who need to because they're afraid of COVID. And then we have some of the hospitals where they're showing up for every damn thing in the world. And, uh, you know, we can't let them in. They can't come in. They can't see their brother. They can't see their sister. The only thing people told me is at least they have less problem with family members uh, sitting in the room continually saying, when are they going to be done, you know, and stealing things out of the drawers. So uh, so it's a double-edged sword for sure. Um, what's going on in uh, Baltimore? Uh, well, we're, much like many other parts of the country, we're in this, uh, I guess, what they're referring to as a third wave. But our numbers are not nearly as bad as some other states. So our, I think our governor has done a really good job about uh, closing things down early. And, and people have been fairly well behaved in the state about wearing their masks when they're told to and not attending bars and other big functions. So I, I think we've done pretty well. But, you know, we still are trying to isolate as much as possible, stay home as much as possible, order out rather than going out to restaurants as much as possible. And and we're hoping that our numbers start falling 
once the vaccinations start getting spread out a lot more also. You know, it's interesting when you hear the people from like the the economics department at the University of Michigan talk about this and say, we will not understand the effects of this for four or five years. People from the education school are now talking about the fact we don't understand with the, what this has done to the usual orderly. Um, uh, going to school, learning to do your times tables, all that kind of stuff. Because as they point out, if you think staying at home uh, and listening to your mom or your dad or something is the same as going to school, you're smoking dope. You're a crazy man. Uh, and it's it's not easy uh, in all of these areas. So I think we haven't seen the ultimate of the pandemic yet. And they're they're talking about four and five years to catch up with some of this. Although stuff. I believe now, we're really true. I don't know. We're very resilient. And I think these young uh, children, my, I've got a six-year-old and a nine-year-old. These kids are sponges and they will quickly get back to where they were, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, actually, Rick, what they're doing <laughs> is stealing money out of your wallet while you're sitting here doing this because they're in school. You know what? And, I, and uh, that's the problem. Yeah. When I left Los Angeles yesterday, there were zero uh, um, ICU beds left, zero. Uh, and we all know what that means. Um, and there's getting out the dusting off the crisis standard of care documents. Right. Arizona has one. It's 142 pages, which if you kind of follow, you will kind of uh, say, okay, we're, we're, all in this, we're all doing this together. We're all going to make triage decisions in a similar manner. We're not going to discriminate by age alone, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, uh, because uh, there is going to be clearly, at least in Los Angeles, there's going to be rationing because um, they have not even hit the peak of what they expect to have, which is going to occur over the next four to six weeks. I will say this, humans have short memories. They're always when you're on TV and they say, oh, this is the worst of times. This is this, this is that. I was working in the steel mill in Detroit in 1967 when the Michigan National Guard got replaced by the 101st Airborne to stop civil insurrection and 137 people died. I, I, I mean, it's it's interesting. We have minds which block out bad crap almost immediately. Uh, that's the one thing about being an old guy. You've seen bad stuff before. And you're right, Rick. We are resilient. We will get through this. Something else will happen. But I'll tell you what, I never saw the end of my academic career like this. I mean, uh, on March the 1st, I was supposed to give a lecture at a, at a residency, uh, something I've done, uh, you know, 500 times before. They called me up and said, you know what? You can't come. Uh, we'll reschedule, you know, in a few months. Well, it never came. And all the others got canceled, including the European meeting, including all of this stuff. Um, it is a big change to a lot of us old guys. Yeah, we really thought it would be over by the summertime, and then they said by the fall, and, and now who knows when it's going to be over. Yeah, we'll keep yeah, our fingers crossed. Yes, but and, and and I will say this, doctors always bitch and piss and moan that, uh, oh, it's so bad, this, that, another thing. Um, you wouldn't want to be a waitress right now trying to feed your family on what's going on. I mean, I think 
our end of the spectrum, and and Amal, you're a child, but you're looking at a couple of old guys who are retired. Uh, we're getting a check every month from the federal government, whether we step out the door or not. What I worry about are those people who uh, really do make decisions between health care and non-health care because of the cash coming in the door, and that's not right. Well, let's get to something a little bit uh, uh, more... Uh, less depressing kind of thing. Cheery. Let's go to a uh, less depressing. So this is, this is still depressing, right? but this will exactly. be less depressing. <laughs> this is about getting sued for cardiologic mistakes. As we're starting this, let me just tell you that in this month's issue of, of uh, verdict settlements and uh, experts, and Amal has been a guy who's followed my career for a long time and knows that I quote, from this uh, frequently, and I give talks, so I'll use cases from it. Today, when I, as I'm reading the January issue, they're talking about the fact that the, the issue is very small because there's no lawsuits being decided. Nobody's going to court. Nobody's doing anything, and, and they're bemoaning the fact that there's probably the same amount of malpractice going on, you know, no matter what's what's happening. But he says, we sure as aren't talking about it, and we certainly aren't trying them. And there may actually be some encouragement uh, for plaintiffs to settle early rather than to think that it may go to court at some point in time. You know, by that time, we could be dead. And so there's a... Uh, it's disrupted medicine, but it's disrupted everything else, including the legal system. And, and we should understand that we're just, we're just part of this uh, mess, which is going on. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, yeah it was, um, but it was interesting to see how many places around the country have actu actually watched this huge fall off the cliff drop in the number of actual suits filed. People say, that's simply because that everybody is, nobody is really thinking that much about, they've got so many other things on their plate right now. It's also, uh, there are some blanket uh, pre um, legislation that makes it difficult to sue at this time, particularly if uh, it's a COVID-related case. And right. so, um, and, and I'm sure a lot of them uh, may be, what we're going to focus on today is a, a presentation that almost made it in the past. Uh, is it 10 things or 15 things? That I've no, it's, it's uh, essentially 10 critical things I've learned as an expert witness over the past uh, 12 to 15 years or so. And it's not uh, specifically focused on cardiac cases, although that's the majority of what I see. But, but these are very generic points that I, I've learned by doing these cases, and, and it's a big reason why I do these cases, because there's an awful lot I learned. And I, I had told you guys offline that the, the other title for this presentation could essentially be 10 Critical Lessons I've Learned from Risk Management Monthly, because as as we go through this, <laughs> you'll, you'll see that all of the things I'm going to talk about are the very same things that you guys have been talking about for many years. But when you see these things come up in actual cases, it really hammers these take-home points home that uh, they are so important. And most of these, if not all of these, are pretty simple concepts that we just forget to do. So that, that's the basis for this 
things that I've learned in serving as an expert witness over the years. Uh, Amal has been a uh, loyal attendee of my uh, lectures for many, many years. I see his smiling face in the audience frequently. Um, Stalking is another word. Stalking is another word, (laughs) yes, but we're polite here on on Risk Management (laughs) Monthly. Let me me point out that um, if there's one thing I've learned, it's simplicity. It is the simple things that kill you, not the weird arrhythmias that nobody can figure out, because you've called somebody in on some of those and you've gotten other help. For example, in the last two months in, uh, in the Medical Malpractice Reporter, there are four cases of physicians being success- successfully sued for what they wrote about letting patients out of bed. Now, is, is that a, a cardiology problem? Is that an ER problem? Whatever it is, there are at least four where people were sued because they didn't write an order specific enough as to the activity of the patient. I was one of those old guys who was raised to say, you know, pain, piss, position, perora, parenteral, and you wrote those kind of things down on the chart because when you don't write it down, and, and we've got you know, three or four of them this month, where somebody decided to get themselves out of bed. And if you've written uh, uh, that they can't be out of bed except with assistance, you're in pretty good shape. You've at least transferred that liability uh, to the hospital and its a- a- attendants, the nurses, the techs, the aides, that sort of thing. If you haven't specified that sort of thing, and how simple can this be? There's no calculus here. There's no differential equations. It's in bed, up only with help, all that kind of stuff. And I think we're going to see more and more of these little tiny things. Uh, We forget that now there's no people with patients in the hospital. It was always the par- the 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 family that came out and said, "Hey, John's climbing out of bed, or this is going on, and that's going on." I'll tell you, I've been saved many times by uh, by family members pointing out simple things we didn't write orders on. Absolutely. Yeah, you can see actually how hospitals can get in trouble uh, because a lot of the elderly, uh, they, they needed to go to the john. They're pressing the button. Nobody's coming. They're crying. You know, after nobody comes uh, for a half an hour, they're going to either wet the bed or crawl over that rail, and they crawl over the rail. Yeah, and the, merch, the nurses are going to bitch no matter which they do. I mean, I mean <laughs> it, it, it's a problem. But this exact, as we're speaking right now, I have a family member in the hospital. You can't get up to the University of Michigan hospital. You can't get in. You can't get around. They've got people checking your IDs here and there. Uh, And we always forget that that a lot of us old guys, and I'm now part of that group, uh, we do need help and watching. There's no question about it. Well, why don't we begin? Um, And we'll uh, add our two cents as uh, this evolves. Absolutely. That would be perfect. So the first point uh, is, is, we'll just start out with something really simple. And the first one is that a good documented history, physical, and medical decision-making is far more protective than ordering lots of tests. You know, it, it's really become 
a very test-happy society, especially amongst the younger physicians. And I think there's this concept out there that if you order a lot of tests, it's going to be very protective. But I've seen at least a half dozen cases where you look at the, the entire chart and you just think to yourself, if only they hadn't gotten that CBC, that white count, if only they hadn't gotten that EKG. And this is me saying, oh my God, they got an EKG, you know, of all people, you know, but but there's cases that I've seen that went bad simply because they did too many tests. And what, what happens is you've got a good history, good physical that justifies the decision, but then you get a test, which is just an aberrant finding and, and you, you don't address it. And that's the other corollary, if you get a test, and it comes back abnormal, you, you've you got to address it. And again, this is, Greg, this is something that I learned yeah. from you many, many years ago. You always used to say, don't ask a question if you're not going to do something with the answer. You know, don't just let that abnormal test, that abnormal white count of 15 or, or the EKG that's got some nonspecific junk sit there and, and not address it. Ordering tests is not a good way of covering your butt. It's just a bad idea. Well, it's asking the question that that leads to other questions. And again, as I pointed out, you never ask a question you don't really want to know the answer to. You know, who was that guy in that car leaving my wife's house that night? I don't know. But, you know, she's happy. You're happy. Don't ask stupid questions right now. Yeah. <laughs> now you have to be, be careful, Greg. We're, we're yeah. in a different time now. No. Yeah. <laughs> so, so please don't order tests just to cover yourself. It's much better to just document a really good history of physical and what your thought process is. Number two, vital signs are called vital for a reason. Now, that's not a phrase that I made up. I've heard that from many, many other more senior people. But this is a pet peeve. When, when our medical students come in and a lot of our junior residents come in and they present a case, the one part of the physical exam that they entirely skip is the, the vital sign. And and the respiratory rate in particular is just made up usually at triage. But you've you've got to address the vital signs. What are the vital signs? Look at them. And when there's abnormalities, you've got to address it. You know, a number of years ago in our emergency department, they instituted a policy, which I think probably is one of the very best things in the past 10 years that as a policy was instituted in our emergency department. And that is before any patient's allowed to leave, the attending physician has to essentially sign off on what the discharge vital signs are. You have to look at them. And I can't tell you the number of times where a patient is all set to go and the nurse brings you the vitals or you look in the, the EPIC system or whatever and you look at the discharge of vitals and, oh, my God, the heart rate is 110. Well, you know what? They're not going home yet. Or the blood pressure is 85. And nobody told you about those abnormal vitals. Um You've got to take a look at those vitals, and if they're abnormal, you've you've got to address it. If you've got a good reason for the tachycardia, maybe you've given them a whole bunch of nebs or whatever, then then so be it. But you've got to address the vital signs, and then the corollary to that is what I've seen more frequently in just the past few years is that there's an increasing focus not just on the systolic blood pressure, but more on the the MAP, the mean arterial pressure, and, and also the shock index. That's shown up in a handful of cases as well. So shock index is heart rate over the systolic blood pressure, and it's always bad when that's greater than one. Your heart rate should never be greater than your systolic blood pressure. I think that's a general uh, and, rule that we could probably <laughs> yeah. agree on. We, 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 <laughs> no, we can no, agree with no this. No disagreement one. here. 
You know, yeah. it's very it's very interesting that I started giving these talks in medical legal probably 40, 45 years ago. And the, the comment about the vital sign, the fa- and, and I, I think I used to say, they don't call them important signs or like really important signs. They call them vital signs, which comes from the Latin vitae for life because no good vital signs, no good life. And it's just that simple. If they're walking out the door with a funky number, somebody's going to say something about it. And it, you got to come back and they're going to ask you that question right on the stand. Dr. Henry, would you like to have a blood pressure of 70 over 50? No, right. no. Personally, I wouldn't. Yeah. yeah well, the, one of the, the other problems is it's right there on the chart. It's not a matter of equivocation, but <laughs> well, could be, maybe kind of thing. No, right. no, no. There's the number. It was 120 when they uh, heart rate when they left. Yeah, and, remember all the arguments we used to have? Did you hear a third heart sound? No, this is nothing like that. This is flat out in front of you. No subtlety now. here. No subtlety. Yeah. And and again, we're a very systolic blood pressure trained society, but but we've come to realize that diastolic blood pressure is more important. I mean, we, we live two-thirds of our life in diastole. And that's why the mean arterial pressure accounts for a diastolic pressure as twice as important as systolic. So the example I always bring up, you know, who's got a better blood pressure? Somebody who's 90 over 60 or 110 over 40. If you ask a junior level resident, they're going to say 110 over 40. But actually, the 90 over 60 is a better MAP. And people just totally ignore the diastolic pressures. You've got to pay attention to the diastolic pressure or at least the MAP which accounts for both. And and then the, the last point with, with this is don't ever assume that somebody is going to notify you when the vital signs go bad. Uh, and, and again, I've, I've taken sign out on patients over the years where you, you walk in the room and you find out the patient's blood pressure is 85 or 80. And you ask, how long has the blood pressure been like that? You ask the nurse or the tech or whoever. And it turns out the patient's blood pressure has been like that for the past three or four hours and nobody knew about it. Nobody, nobody really told you about it. So don't assume that people are going to notify you every time the blood pressure or the heart rate goes bad. You've got to check in on those patients regularly. For those who are non-physicians who are listening to this, uh, Amo made the comment that we live in diastole. Yeah, that's a small town in New Hampshire. You can look it up on the uh, in the thing. But but it is it is you're right where most of us spend most of our lives. Yeah. Number three, this is something that I definitely never learned in residency, but it's something that comes up over and over and over. And it's been a very important teaching point for me. If your patient is sick, you've got to watch the clock because if things go bad, that timeline of what happened and how long it took to do things gets played out during that deposition or in in court. Doctor, why did it take so long to get the blood from the blood bank. Doctor, why did it take 30 minutes to call the consult when you knew this was happening? Doctor, why did it take six minutes to defibrillate this patient who was in ventricular fibrillation? You've gotta watch the clock when, you, when your patient's sick. And then also when you, you see the patient, you put orders in and you just assume everything is gonna be done right away and it never works that way. <laughs> Don't ever assume that the rest of the staff knows how time critical sick patients need things done. If, if you're worried about somebody 
yeah, put the orders in, but make sure that the nurses and techs know this patient needs that EKG right now. This patient needs an IV and labs to be sent right now. And and document the reason for delays. If, if there is a patient who's an injection drug user who's got no IV access and it takes 30 minutes before an IV is placed, make sure that you document that there's a delay because the patient had no IV access. Document those delays well. By the way, nobody sitting on a jury understands a has a time frame of how things should happen. One of the best plaintiffs attorneys I know uh, pulled this line, and you can use this if you want, Abel, in your next talk. He just looked at the jury and said, everybody now, when I say go, we're going to hold our breath. And then he just started to count down. And of course, within 15, 20 seconds, everybody is panting, he says. And it took this person was in respiratory distress for one hour. What do you think that was like? That's like torture. And, uh, it, you know, you and I can kind of shrug our shoulders. But with with lay people, they don't understand that. And to a great degree, they shouldn't just casually understand that. It's not a good thing. We call that artful yeah. lawyering. Artful <laughs> lawyering. Exactly. Yeah. You know, the, the, the lab and the blood bank in particular are not your friend. No. Uh, I, when, when, you, when you've got a person who's bleeding out and you need that blood immediately, that is exactly when the blood bank decides to take four hours to send the blood up. And, and so you, you've got to be on top of them. When, when that patient has peak T waves and wide QRS and, and you're waiting for that potassium, that's exactly when they're rerunning it and rerunning it and rerunning it. So if you need a lab test, get on the phone and call and make sure that they know not to be rerunning it over and over, but but get those as quickly as possible. Again, the people in the lab and the people in the blood bank have no idea when you're really concerned about someone. So if you need a lab back or you need those pack cells coming up, you need to call and tell them, send the stuff immediately. You know, you, you raise a point that I, I had several times when I knew this patient wasn't doing well. And I called down to the lab and to say, the potassium, where is it? They said, well, we had to run it multiple times because this can't be right. No, give me the number you've got right. Give me our working hypothesis right now because I've got to move on something at this moment in time. And and it was it was interesting that they thought that because the number didn't fall within you know, most people who are alive, that, that it was wrong. No, it may be exactly what you've got in front of you. Yeah. You know, really when it pain. comes to uh, ordering blood, I think uh, one of the responsibilities that the physician has to do is make that decision. Are we going to wait for the type and screen or are we going to uh, basically go uh, O negative, type specific, that kind of thing? And yeah. when you go uh, type specific, it's kind of viewed as that's kind of like a commando move. And uh, you, you're kind of like going around. What, what that says to the world is this patient really is bleeding out, out and we need this urgently, urgently. I, and I would think that most blood blanks, when you've ordered type specific blood, the red flag has to go up that the clock is running big time in those cases. Actually looking at the units of blood given in the department one month, uh, about three-quarters of them didn't need to be given at all, and those that did need to be given needed to be given right now. 
And it it was not, you know, there's somebody down at a, uh, a uh, seven or an eight need to have hand pumped in. I don't know. But believe me, when you've seen blood pumping uh, and, and, and they're dropping, uh, what people also don't realize is the blood pressure number is not necessarily the number you need to have at that moment in time. If they're not perfusing their brain, this is a bad thing. And it's not going to go well for the patient. Yeah. So anytime the patient is bleeding out, they're always going to run that timeline for how long it took yeah, to absolutely. If somebody's in VFib, again, number of cases where the physician gets questioned, why did it take five minutes, six, seven minutes to defibrillate? Patient's heading downhill. Uh, why did it take seven minutes to intubate that patient? And the one thing, I, the one other thing I've learned is that after a code, I always go back over the timeline with the nurses because when they document the times that different things were done, oftentimes those are estimates and those estimates can look awfully bad. Again, a couple of cases I've seen where looking at the nursing documentation, the patient's airway is going bad. They try intubate, they try intubate. And according to the documentation, the patient was in asystole for four minutes before they did a crike. And it was purely because there, there were mistakes made in terms of the nurse's estimate about the time when the intubation and the crike was done. The good lawyer will prepare the nurse, doc, whoever it is, before they speak to say, what is your usual and custom when you write down this number at this time? At 12.01, we did X. Is that a summary statement of what's been going on? Is it actually what happened at that moment? Because I think each of us has a little different way of charting that may, which has to be explained. And the, some of the best defense lawyers I've seen know how to take their, their the, particularly the, their nurse, nursing and, and uh, uh, the house staff uh, through this system so that the, they convey to the, to the jury that they did understand that there was a problem going on and it wasn't that they were cleaning their nails or having lunch or, or something like that. They were doing something. It's very rare when a patient turns to stool. I think that term is still politically correct. Uh, none of us are sitting around. When, when, I, when I have more sweat on me than the patient does, there, there is a problem and that we're doing something, but we're not charting it minute by minute by second by second. Most of what we do is a summary statement at some point in time. Yeah, excellent. Uh, number, number four, a consult is not a consult if it's not documented. So beware of the phone consults and document the times of the consults and document the conversations very clearly. Again, I've seen all too many cases, especially in the cardiology world, where the emergency physician calls up cardiology and some discussion happens. It's not well documented. The cardiologist is at home, never comes in, and the patient ends up going bad. And then in the end, it always turns out to be a fight over what was said during the conversation. The cardiologist says, well, if you had told me how sick the patient was, of course I would have come in right away. And Greg, you're laughing because I'm sure you've heard this many times before. I, I've said it and, many times yeah. before. And, and, and it's I mean, crazy. Yeah, you hear that in the depositions. 
And uh, it's because what's documented on the ED chart is simply cardiologist consult. There's no name, there's no time, there's no discussion of what was actually said. And it becomes he said, she said, and it always goes against the emergency physician, it seems. You know, I've, I've looked on the record of my hospital, there is no doctor cardiology. <laughs> and and you, you could use that line if you want at some point. The bottom line is you spoke to some human that we can identify and talk to because when, when you have a, a big place, particularly academic places, where you've got first-year residents, second-year residents, fellows, this, that, another thing, to say cardiology responded, I have no idea who that is or who I can speak to at some point in time if there's a problem. Names count. Who was it? When did they say? The other thing is, if they say, I'll be down in 12 minutes, A, number one, they're lying, uh, and number two, uh, make sure you put that down there because when they don't show up, what are you going to do about it? Uh, and, and and you need to you need to have something that you can s- stick to it with, uh, particularly when you're talking to their attendings. Could I add another place where names count? I think it's when uh, there's a translator, uh, and later on the person will say, you know, I didn't understand. Uh, I, I I don't speak English very well. And if you have a translator there and, and you know the name of that translator, you can, uh, you, I think you can reasonably show that this person is, was competent to translate, that they, uh, they were there and that, that you weren't depending on the patient's pidgin English to um, get the history and physical right. So, and I think a lot of times when translators are there, and even if the translator is the daughter or the, or the, or the, or the 15-year-old, or if it has to be, it shouldn't be, but you know, sometimes I see a six-year-old being used as a translator. I mean, maybe those days are over, but I know using that phone with the two receivers is a pain in the butt uh, to right. do, and so we kind of fall back and say, you know, the daughter understands, and we'll we'll ask the daughter. Yeah, yes. it's it, it's that can be absolutely deadly, and um, we had we had a doctor who explained to us in our small grouping, he was Indian, and says, you know, when you speak to somebody from India, he said, there are 400 languages in India, and there are 4,000 dialects. He said, here in the United States, we kind of think about people kind of all kind of understand the English. If you're in a small town near Bhopal, do you honestly think that that group of of people, those few hundred thousand people speak exactly as they do in the next one. And he said, and I've had several times when we got the the uh, translating service on the phone, and they've said to me right to my face, well, they don't actually speak the Indian dialect that I speak. He said, so I'm not sure they understand all the words. The other thing is all of us have a set of words which we use with our children. You know, did you go poo-poo, did you do caca, this sort of other thing, that is not easily translatable back and forth. So to me, the translator, who it is, and I, I know I've taken criticism when I used a family member, but they were the only one who we could actually get to translate. You know, if, if you've got a 14-year-old girl who speaks both languages perfectly, that's the way to go. 
Sure, sure. Yeah, we we had a very similar case just uh, about a week ago where a patient came in speaking Creole, and we got the Creole translator, <laughs> and and she said that this is a dialect of Creole that she couldn't understand, and and, and so it became a, a you know an impossible situation until we tracked down an adult relative who was able to uh, to translate for us. Ab- absolutely, yeah. I, I've had that and. You think you think that it's simple, even you know. Well, they're born in the United States. They, everybody should understand. No, they don't understand each other. And at home, they speak to each other in a in a different language. A thirteen year old is perfect as the translator because they have to function at school. They've got all their friends. They listen to everything on radio and TV, and they have to talk to their grandfather. Right. Right. Uh, Number five is a simple one, uh, but it's an important one. Radiology reports, make sure to read the fine print. I I think there's oftentimes a tendency to just look right at the bottom of the radiology report. For example, let's say you get a CT angiogram to look for PE. Well, all we might be interested in is looking at, is there a PE, yes or no? Meanwhile, there's four paragraphs of text above that. And in small print somewhere in there, there's something about a nodule or maybe a very small pericardial effusion. Um, And it's even a bigger issue with abdominal pelvic CTs because there'll be a paragraph for the liver and a paragraph for the pancreas and a paragraph for the kidneys. And and somewhere in that small print, there might be some little finding that maybe you don't need to act on it emergently, but at the very least, you gotta get follow-up for that patient. The best radiologists ask you this question, Greg, what do you wanna know? What question? is up to be answered because he knows if he just puts down a bunch of crap, what he's put down is a lot of stuff. Says, what do you need to know from the emergency department today? The guys who do that, I always had great admiration for because they actually wanted to help us out and make, make the thing move along. The other thing is the great radiologists, when there's something really funky, they call you up. It isn't sent over somewhere. He calls up and says, it's now 4.02. Who am I speaking to? Because I'm going to give you what's on this film. By 4.03, you should be fixing it. For example, if you see somebody with with a tension pneumothorax, I mean, that shouldn't be put through the system uh, and hope that before the patient leaves, it's, it's, it's somehow discovered. Uh, radiologists ought to be like everybody else. They ought to get excited when they see stuff that can kill you. Um, and and, and I've, I have great admiration for those guys who understand what their job really is, as opposed to, you know, uh, buying vacation homes in Florida. I mean, now, they, now, they, now. Ought have, now, now. <laughs> they, they ought to have some other job. Yeah, our, our radiologists are pretty good about calling with things, and they're really good about putting names on the charts also, which, yeah. which, which is the right thing to do. So basically we're talking about the incidental findings, which yes. uh, can uh, come back. To, and there's so many cases about incidental findings that um, it's, it's just a, it's, it's kind of ridiculous. Uh, yeah, that's for sure. And uh, the radiologist calling... We used to have a radiologist call all all the time. Oh, and by the way, Greg, you're not supposed to have a picture of a tension pneumothorax. 
Did you know that, you know, <laughs> yes. if you have an x-ray of attention neurothorax, you screwed something I, I, I under, up. I understand that. But let me just say, we've all had that finding come back, <laughs> which we, which put a small amount of stool in our pants uh, that, that we should have picked up in some other way. And there it is. And, and I'll tell you, I, when they say, Dr. Henry, they told me you had to call them because it's that important. You know what? Every time I call them because they've got something I want to know about. I promise you they do. Yeah, I think we all have that x-ray in our files somewhere. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all right. Number six, this is an easy one, but it, it can be tough in a busy emergency department. Uh, poor communication is a frequent theme in lawsuits. And so my pearl here is just be nice to people. Just be nice, especially to the family. Uh, again, I, I've seen a handful of these cases show up purely because somebody was mean or nasty or unfriendly to a family member. Right. And once they get angry, you you better be perfect because if anything goes bad, that angry family member is going to come after you. You know, if you're an asshole and you're right, you're an asshole. If you're an asshole and you're a, a wrong, you're called the defendant physician. <laughs> and I think if you if you put those things in a row, it, it's true. I, I will say this, however, and we're seeing this now with COVID. Um, it's hard to be perfect all the time, but you can be reasonable. And and we're you're going to have somebody who's going to push your button and and push you away and then it's okay to go back and say I'm not sure we're communicating correctly here and I've used that line a bunch of times I want to make sure that you and I we're on the same page I want your mother to get better and you want your mother to get better so I, I want to make sure we're understanding this and and it's okay to do that uh, and but the smart doc knows when the communication is going badly. And um, I've saved several residents, but listening to the discuss discussion when I was brought in, and you could feel the tension that something wasn't being done. And they, they're surprised when I actually say to the patient, is there something else here that... You know, you want us to do. We, I said, you know, we're a full service shop here. We we could, we don't do everything immediately. But what else? Do you, what else can we do for you? And you can see the tension coming down on their face. And then they say, well, I thought they were going to do this, or I thought they were going to do that. The worst thing you can do is let the tension lay there and not not I and D the problem. Yeah, yeah. You talked about addressing their expectations early. And, and also before they go, communicate with them about what the expected outcomes are. And and, and I think, again, uh, I, I, I don't know whether I heard this from you or some other folks talking about wound care as an example, but somebody comes in with a laceration, just tell them up front, look, there's a 5% chance this is gonna get infected with or without antibiotics. So you've gotta keep an eye on this. And that way, if it does get infected, they knew it was a possibility that it might happen. My uh, partner, Neil, used to give the best talk on anticipatory guidance. Tell them what can happen, what we will do, because sure as hell, it will happen at some point in your career, whatever it is. Bring them back in. 
And the bottom line, the last word is, come on down, see us again, come on back. We're open 24-7, we never close. Bring grandma back, we'll do whatever you want. If you can't get in to see your doctor, we'll take care of it. And it doesn't matter what it is, because the ER, you're there anyway, right? I mean, you're sitting there. If grandma's laceration is now infected, and really does need drainage or or antibiotics or something like that. I'd rather see it now than hear about it from her attorney. I promise you that. Neil Little is also the one who was uh, quoted as the uh, author of the philosophy of yes. Yes. The answer the answer to all questions was yes. yes. Doctor, can I have a cigarette? Yes, you can have a cigarette as soon as we extubate you. You know, right. those those kind. There was always a qualification, but yeah. You know, but the a, first answer, there was no no's. There was always yeah. yes, but. Yeah, that's right. He he said you always start out by satisfying their need, and then you negotiate down to what you're actually going to do. And I think that's that's exactly right. Yeah, I like that. So, number seven: assume you and your staff are always on camera in the emergency department. So be careful of what you say and what you do at all times. And and I've made this mistake before of making some flippant comment about a patient and I turn around and the family member is right there with an earshot. Mommel, you make a flippant comment. (laughs) I think he must be the only one that that did that. That would be like me doing something. It would just wouldn't happen. No, it's 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 very difficult to to not occasionally get cynical during a tough shift. It happens to to all Everybody. of us. You just have to be really really careful, and you have to make sure that your staff is also when when they're commenting about a difficult patient or something like that. You know, people are listening to that. It might not even be the patient or their family themselves, but a different family hears the staff or you making some negative comments about a patient in a different room, and that just makes them have a very negative impression of you all also. So just keep keep every behavior, every comment professional. And and if you really have to vent, do it in the in the lounge or somewhere where absolutely no patient or family member are, are gonna hear it. I think the doctor really sets the tone in the department and if they if the staff hears you uh, making comments uh, then they feel it's okay to make comments. If they f- right. feel that you're uh, uh, making um, references that demean anybody there, then that then they can too. And um, so, if you don't do it, and if you maintain a high standard, uh, and you can expect that from your staff as well, so you can call them on it if 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 you are without sin, and hopefully you will be. I have uh, throughout my career at least three. uh, three young doctors who I could not save their careers. And early on, if you notice they're making some of those mistakes, pull them aside. And, 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 you know, I was older. Uh, My name was on the front of some of the textbooks, things like that. You got to say a few things like, you know, here would have been a better way of handling this situation. And they will immediately become defensive as well. You know, this person's just a complainer, or they're this or that. I said, you know, all com- all complainers eventually uh, are pronounced dead, and you don't want to be associated with that process if you can avoid it. Uh, and 
I, a couple guys, I actually told them, you need to know when it's not going well. Step out of the room, come get one of us, and, and, and let us diffuse where this is going. Because just a few words from an older guy who, you know, looks like he ought to know better uh, can, can make a family feel very reassured. And, and, and I, think, I think that's important. I think we don't often understand what the role is in a training program. A lot of the residents can read the EKGs better than I can. I don't, no problem. Uh, that doesn't mean they can handle what the patient's need is as well as I can. You know, I've seen 140,000 of them now. I've got somebody, so I've learned something about managing expectations. And that's what we do. We manage expectations. We don't necessarily save lives every day. Right. Uh, number eight, know the major guidelines of your specialty and follow them or have decent literature to back you up if you don't. Uh, so, so guidelines were never intended to be a standard of care. In fact, many of the guidelines have little um, uh, little statements at the beginning saying this is not a standard of care, this is a guideline. But the plaintiff attorneys use them as standards of care. And it's really easy to convince the jury that this guideline, which has been endorsed by five different societies and has 180 references and is written by some of these big, big names in the specialty, it's really easy to convince the jury that this guideline represents the standard of care. And they come at you and they say, doctor, why did you not follow what this nationally endorsed guideline says you're supposed to do? And, you know, I would say you don't have to follow guidelines, but if you don't, you ought to have good literature to back you up. Exactly. Why we're no longer doing it this way. And I use that with patients when they say, oh, well, we thought we were going to get this or this. And I would say, well, you're very smart. You understand what we do. This is what we do now. This has changed over but it, obviously you're sharp, you've picked up on this, and this is why. What you do is you bring them into your confidence. You never talk to them like they're, they're so stupid they don't know the medicine. You talk to them as if they're so smart. They know which directions we used to go, and here's why we're not doing it. Having the discussion today about not doing an, an appendectomy on an eight-year-old boy is totally different than it was 15 or 20 years ago. The literature's changed. All those people remember when their neighbor next door took their eight-year-old in and he had his appendix out. Well, because they're not taking the appendix out doesn't mean it's wrong. What it means is you've got to invest a little more time in, in dealing with the situation. Yeah, and that kind of weighs into addressing their expectations as well, that example that you gave. Yeah, and everybody, what, what, what our young residents don't understand is everybody walks in, everybody, with expectations. I don't care whether they're a truck driver, unemployed, a drug shooter. They have expectations of what the experience is going to be like, and you need to at least get them up on the table and talk about why we're doing it one way or another. And um, I'm sure, you know, I haven't been in an emergency department since COVID has been going on, 
but I'm sure there are things we do differently. One of them is uh, your mother can't come back and sit with you uh, during this period. That's a perfect example. I mean, it's not that we want to keep your mother out of here. We like your mother. She's a good gal. Have her bake me some cookies and bring them in. But she can't sit here in the department during COVID. Yeah. You know, one of the problems with guidelines is there are so many. And I think guidelines are difficult to write well. But every Tom, Dick, and Harry organization is coming out with them, including ASEP. And we're a member of ASEP. And don't we think ASEP is a credible organization? Yes, we do. And you can go, go down that path whereby you, by default, being a member, are expected to know the guidelines put forward by ASEP and, um, and other organizations, the Heart Association and the like. But just because there are guidelines out there doesn't mean that they've been disseminated very well. Uh, you never really, you got blindsided by that guideline. I wasn't aware of it. And even if it was disseminated, you know, how does it get implemented? Uh, is this what the community's doing now? Or is this a, this, is this a guideline that, that maybe ought to be used, but it is in fact the, the majority of the, the standard of care is not to use that guideline? Yeah, here, here's what I would say. I, I think you ought to know the guidelines of your specialty. In other words, the ones that are published in emergency medicine. Uh, with the exception of ACLS, which I think people should know, people, uh, let's, let me digress for ACLS. This is a perfect example of what we're talking about. I, I think everyone in emergency medicine knows about ACLS and probably learns ACLS. I don't follow ACLS because there's good literature to say why certain aspects don't work. For example, if I ran a code and didn't give amiodarone and somebody said, doctor, the National, uh, the American Heart Association says you should have used amiodarone. Why did you not give amiodarone? I could come up with 20 articles saying why amiodarone doesn't work, and and boom, I'm I'm fine. But, but you understand the problem. Yeah. Uh, I'm on with that discussion in front of a lay jury. Um, it's always hard for them to understand the fact that all these things aren't decided. Yeah, we'd like to say, well, this is the way we do it. You realize there'd be no progress in medicine if we didn't do it some different ways and eventually change. And I think those are the tough discussions with juries is some people do it this way, some do it another way. There's still plenty of general surgeons who take out the appendix of a 14-year-old. There's another group, and if you're in England, that would be the rare case uh, they're almost always treated with antibiotics and uh, watchful expectation. Uh, it's a, it, but juries have to be explained the fact what guidelines are. And uh, they're not the 10 commandments. You know, it's not the 10 uh, guidelines. They're called the commandments. And they're called the commandments for a reason. Guidelines are a little different. And, um, you know, but I've watched that confusion a lot of times, and it's the skill of the attorney who's sometimes asking the question, well, doctor, you could agree that these are reasonable. So why wasn't it done here on this? You know, yeah. it's, it's not simple. Uh, if, if it was that simple, <laughs> they wouldn't need us. Yeah. The, the saving grace, in answer to your question, Rick, I think this, there, there's a couple of saving graces. Number one, I don't think that you're obligated to know the guidelines that are not published in emergency medicine. So if 
the cardiology literature has published guidelines about what we're supposed to do, I don't think you're obligated to know that. And in the deposition, they'll say, doctor, do you know about this guideline that was published in Journal of American College of Cardiology? If you simply say, no, that's not an EM journal, I don't read that. My experience in multiple cases is that they will ask no further questions about that. They will only ask you about guidelines that you admit to having read in EM journals, for example, in annals. If you say that's the journal that you read, and those are the guidelines, which are not that often, but those are the clinical policies or guidelines that that you read, then I think those are the only ones that you you will be asked well, about. Well, that's kind of interesting you, because yeah. you know the American Academy of Neurology may come up with guidelines with regard to the management of status epileptics, something which is kind of like a big deal for us, and um, they're trying to help us by coming up with those guidelines, even though it is. They're, they're developing, they're actually asking emergency physicians to implement these because they're going to be the frontline doctors. So um, you can see that uh, there, there is the potential. And I think that you have a nice answer in there in that it is not an, out of an emergency journal, but they are guidelines focused exactly on what we do. And um, I guess the issue then is dissemination and implementation. Uh, there is this issue of knowledge translation where we have these gaps between what is known and what is practiced. And um, uh, some sometimes patients get caught in the middle because um, they're not receiving the care that we know is better or evidence-based, but it's not been disseminated to the medical community as, uh, as broadly as it has, and so they haven't picked it up on it. And by the way, we have all kinds of cases where what is currently being practiced is perfectly fine, but there's something new that has appeared in a journal last month, this, that, and other thing. And of course, you bring down the neurology resident. Now, they're never there for the initial seizure. You understand that. Uh, but they've come in from home. They're seeing the, the patient now. And they want to do something different. That may be okay, and, and you might want a reasonable discussion about that. But don't think that every time a new therapy comes down the pike, you've got to be administering that because it appeared in one journal someplace. Medicine isn't like that. And I was very surprised as I initially got into medicine about how much we don't agree on, on certain things. You know, which kids ought to go to the operating room for this or that? Which, which, uh, what constitutes uh, a seizure, uh, reasonable seizure control? All these things are not simple. But there's another point of view. Look at uh, the Choosing Wisely guidelines. There are ENT or, uh, societies making guidelines that will relate to emergency physicians for sure. There are radiologists making guidelines and don't, don't get back x-rays if it's a musculoskeletal back uh, issue. So in choosing wisely, there are at least eight or nine organizations making recommendations that specifically address what would be done in an emergency setting. And it's mm -hmm. kind of like we, 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 we just don't, we haven't really necessarily paid attention to them. They're allowed to advise us on, you know, status epilepticus. That's kind of, they're the, uh, the experts on that. And, and the um, embracing of their guidelines, even though they're technically not emergency medicine guidelines, um, I think uh, 
I think there's some issues there where patients may not be getting the care that they're deserving because we have not um, taken an effort to bring into our practice the guidelines which are very pertinent to it. Yeah, right. I, I think you're right, but I, I think I would just separate knowledge dissemination from risk management. From the knowledge dissemination standpoint, I agree exactly. there's some great guidelines in other journals that should be taught in our conferences and republish in our journals. But from a risk management standpoint, you know, people can argue with me about this, but I, I would say firmly that from a risk management standpoint, if a guideline is published in a non-emergency medicine journal and in deposition, they ask you about that guideline and you simply respond by saying, I don't read that journal, therefore I don't know about that guideline, they will not ask you further questions or obligate you to know what is published in that guideline. Right. And so okay. I, I think knowing what's in annals and clinical policies is, is worthwhile. The other saving grace is that if you look at the clinical policies that annals and ASEP and other emergency medicine journals publish, they're they're pretty light. I mean, they're they're not dogmatic. They're not, you need to do this, you need to do that. There are things like a patient comes in with a headache, you know, it's class 1A, do a good history and physical. Well, you know, of course, that, that's okay. I can live with that. But but there is no guideline that's 1A that says this is, you must do a CTLP. And, you know, they, they say things like consider CTLP if it's abrupt onset and things. So, so they're, they're pretty generic. And, and I think the clinical policies are largely written to help with risk management when you actually look at the way they're written in emergency medicine. Yeah, um, I was in that position where um, when I was uh, head of ASEP, we had to meet with other specialties to talk about these things, how they were going to word it, what it was going to say. And we spent a lot of time making sure that when we were both going to put our names on a policy, that it was the kind of thing that our people could live with. The truth is, I probably saw more status epilepticus in my career than any neurologist on our staff. Why? Because they're not sitting in the emergency department at two o'clock in the afternoon uh, when somebody's seizing and not coming under control. Nobody says you can't pick up the phone to the seizure expert and get some help. But we shouldn't believe that we have sort of an inferior knowledge base in taking care of sick patients. I mean, uh, the best cardiologist on our staff uh, doesn't defibrillate any better than I do. <laughs> I, my my second year out of residency, I was working at a community hospital down in the emergency department. One of the cardiologists was consulting on a patient, and she comes running out of the room and says, "Someone call a code," <laughs> not totally uh, not realizing <laughs> that we don't call codes; we just take care of it ourselves. Right. And she 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 was gone about within five minutes because she didn't want anything to do with that. Right. So, so, all right, last two, uh, number nine, before you discharge a patient, look at your chart or look at what you have just documented, look, or look at what you are about to document and ask yourself, if this patient goes home and has a bad outcome, is someone going to look at my documentation and think, you know what, I think I would have sent that person home also, or are they going to look at what you just documented and say, what the heck were you thinking? And that mindset has saved me many times, yep. honestly, where I come walking out of the room and I think, you know what, for whatever reason, I was biased in some way or another. And I'm thinking this person is going home. 
and I sit there and I start documenting and uh, I document, let's see, patient had chest pain radiating to the left arm. Um, okay. Uh, and uh, the patient has a history of hypertension and said she couldn't sleep last night laying flat. And I'm thinking, what the heck am I documenting? I'm going to send somebody home. There's no way this person's going home. And I go running back into the room. It's a true story. I went running back into the room and said, and said, don't give out the discharge papers. This patient has to stay. And, and it really taught me, you know, take a look at what you're about to document and ask yourself, is somebody else going to look at what I've just documented and think, you're an idiot. Why would you send this person home? You know, and, and the thing is, if a lawsuit happens, the evidence that they're going to use is what you've documented. You get to create the evidence. So why wouldn't you create evidence and document well and, and make sure anyone who looks at your chart is going to be led to the same disposition conclusion that you came to? In, in all honesty, um, you and I and Rick and everybody – has looked over one of their cases and said, what the hell was I thinking? Absolutely. We have, and and could, could I, I wish I could have that one back because in the light of day and with the emotion of the patient out of it at that moment in time, it looks different. The other thing is there are thousands of things which influence our decision-making. You and I all know patients who made in our career 300 trips to the emergency department. Every single one of us has known those frequent flyers. And every time you I'd have a little talk with myself that said, Greg, sit down. It's just like they came in the first time. And if you don't like the story, you're going to have to do what you do with anybody else who you didn't like the story. Now, you know, we know what their cath shows and we know what this shows and that shows. But every one of us has had somebody in our career that taking an extra minute and sitting down and going, you know, I, I can't defend this. I can't defend them. I know they hate me upstairs on the phone. Do I know the residents hate me? Yeah, okay. I, I'm, I'm old enough and have broad enough shoulders and have enough publications that I can handle their hate. What I can't handle is sending that patient home. You know, I think one of the things that we have learned to create over time is the chart that is internally consistent with the death disposition of the patient. So we create right. the go-home chart. We create the admit chart. Uh, and that's an acquired skill, I think. And, and uh, sometimes we could uh, in, inadvertently make a chart that doesn't sound like the go-home chart. That sounds like an admit chart to me kind of thing. <laughs> yes. or, or to your colleague who reads it dispassionately after, after the patient's gone. So I do think that uh, people need to understand that th their chart will be the only uh, record of the uh, transaction. And if it internally is not consistent with the disposition, you'll be reading it at the deposition. Right, right. I, I mean, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that uh, some of these chest pain charts that I've seen in in uh, depositions have words like uh, diaphoresis and pain radiating to the right arm and pain started while shoveling the snow. And and, and those are red flags. <laughs> they, they should not be on the chart of a patient that you sent home. That Those are red flags <laughs> that need to come in. Yeah, I mean, it's all, just amazing when you see these. 
All guys who get chest pain while shoveling snow should be sent to Miami for the winter uh, so that we don't have to deal with those kinds of deals. But the the bottom line is we all will will be colored by our previous experiences with that patient, with other patients like that. And believe me, uh, it, it, I used to tell a story about somebody who was sent home uh, and and died. The attending who did that, you know, over the phone, had sent that patient home and died. Whenever we wanted to get somebody admitted, we'd say he reminds me a lot of Mr. Smith <laughs> or Mr. Jones. And then he'd oh, oh, bring him in, bring him in, it's okay. Yeah, you, you've probably made the right decision from the emergency department. And, you know, they're always very critical of us sitting down there. Well, you didn't, the next day they say things like, well, you didn't really need to admit that one. I said, oh, okay, you can sit here in a chair and you can look at each one of them and decide which one you're going to admit. The truth of the matter is they admit just about the same people we do. Yeah, I always love it when uh, they they argue about the admission and they finally give in and say, all right, fine, I'll admit the patient. And then you follow up on the patient and they're still in the hospital three days later. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that, but the thing is that happens all the time. How come you're so smart? You know, how come that many floors up where the oxygen level is actually higher and everybody's smarter. Three days later, they're, they're still paying Blue Cross Blue Shield rates to take up a bed. You know, you weren't that good. And, and uh, it happens to, to each one of us. The other thing is there is that, that broad range where there will be an occasional political or social admission. I have no embarrassment or shame of that. Have I admitted somebody throughout my career who probably could have been? I'm sure. Okay, it's all right. And sometimes that may be an important form of therapy. It, it, it really is. You know, talking about the creation of the uh, go-home chart, sometimes the creation of the go-home chart is kind of uh, screwed up big time by looking at what the nurse's notes say. And because the nurse's notes may have some of those words, which are no go home words. So now, now there's a, a, a conflict. And if the outcome is bad, your notes are going to be looking like, like uh, not consistent with the truth because this nurse said the person was di diaphoretic during some period of their time there. Right. The outcome is bad. And they're looking in there. There's the bad, there's the evidence that, that they shouldn't have gone home. But it's not in your record; it's the, in their record, and the, so this idea of reading nurses' notes um, is is really, I think, important. Now, I don't know whether well, you know electronic medical on, records make makes it more difficult to look at nurses' notes or or not. Um, uh, what do you think about that, uh, Amo? Can you, know you read that. nurses' notes in your record? We get the triage note. But the updated uh, notes that they put in there are in a separate area of the <laughs> computer chart code word. that you, you have to make an effort to find it, and it's not intuitive or easy. So uh, just like what Greg was saying, it does become more difficult. Well, and, and more than that, when you have to present those cases in front of a jury, you, they, you, they look at them and say, we bring healthcare professionals together so they can cooperate 
they can share information, they can do this and that. And where there's something tagged in there, it doesn't look good. And it doesn't look good to jurors to hear that we don't talk to each other. Why wouldn't you know about X, Y, or Z? It's, it's extremely painful. Um, and and j just remember that it's plain old folks who sit on the jury. They don't have, they don't have, fortunately, they don't have full professors uh, of, of, of cardiology on the jury. It just doesn't happen. And, and to a great degree, that probably helps us out. Uh, but uh, it's, it's plain old folks who've got to listen to this stuff. Yeah. And then the other part of the chart is something that you guys have spent a lot of time teaching about, and that is the importance of good discharge instructions. Uh, I think, I think, Greg, I probably heard this in one of your conferences at some point that one third of cases turn on the basis of good discharge instructions. Um, and, uh, and and that's always stuck with me. So it's, yep. as you said, this is your extra chance to get it right. It's your last shot on the way out the door, not only with the patient, but with the family, because almost nobody goes home alone unless they're heading back to the nursing home and that sort of thing. But they've got a family member who's going to listen to everything you say. You know, these days, since I, you know, I've had my stroke and all that kind of stuff, I've got my, uh, my wife will be listening to, the, to that person when they discharge me. And, uh, you know, she wants to know when to apply for the insurance policy money. And, and uh, it's important. It's important that everybody knows this stuff. Um, a, a little gang getting together at the end to say goodbye is often missed. You've made a mistake when you say to the nurse, here, check them out. You know what? That isn't what they paid for. They paid for, for the, the boss guy to spend some time with them telling them what they might have and what they should do. Yeah, I think that taking the time, if it's feasible, actually, where you work, to give out the discharge instructions yourself, which stops the annoyance of the nurse having to do it, you know, kind of mm -hmm. thing. You know, it's just right. one more person who they have to wait for before they get out of the department uh, for the right. nurse to do it. Um, I used to do it myself. I was uh, I was the lone wolf in terms of doing that, but I, I thought it was a good thing to do. It was, it was really what I would have liked to have seen um, if I was a patient, that the the doctor would come at the end of the visit and say, "Here's here's the here's the plan," and and if you have any new or worsening symptoms, I want you to come back to the emergency department immediately. We'll have a doctor here all uh, all the time, and um, so they they understand that it's okay to come back. And uh, and I, I also one one last thing is I'm really against these discharge instructions that try to make a little doctor out of you. Here's five pages about fever. Here's three pages about vomiting. Here's two pages about, uh, you know, this, that, and the other thing. And you're going out with eight feet worth of paper, which is in the trash can as they leave. Well, Neil Little and I used to do a, um, a skit about the, about the head injury discharge instruction sheets. You know, if, if one pupil is larger than the other... If, if if one if if Check one arm doesn't move, you know, make sure the family can do a basic mini neurological exam at home. And the answer is no. If you have any question, bring them back immediately. 
We're open 24 hours a day, Remember, seven days new, a week. New or worsening symptoms. Come back immediately. And just come back because... Don't go to your you family get, doctor. Come back to this emergency department immediately. You are our patient. Yeah, We're going to take care absolutely, of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. The other thing is, if you if you say too many things and they want to talk to a nurse on the phone for too long, the truth of the matter is, a, a one-second look at a patient is sometimes better than all kinds of conversation. Bring them in. That's what we do for a living. I saw a lot of you guys over my you know, 45 years or 50 years of doing this. Come on in. We'll take a look. See what is, what's going on. So last one, number 10. This is easier said than done. Lawsuits are going to happen. Just accept it and move on. Oh, okay. You know what? Okay. One of my one of my real important pearls that I learned from my residency director, you know, he 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 would say to us before we graduate, he says, all of you carry car insurance. And it's not because you think you're a bad driver. The reason you carry car insurance is because sometimes you're just in the wrong place at the wrong time and bad things happen. And it doesn't mean that you're a bad driver. And lawsuits are gonna happen also. Sometimes yeah. you're just in the wrong place at the wrong time and you can't let it make you feel that it means that you're a bad doctor, just do your best. And and that's why you carry malpractice insurance. Easier said than done, for sure. Much easier because you've picked a group of people who are not small ego individuals. They don't take criticism well from you and I when we're instructing them. If you think they like some attorney telling them that they, they're uh, reckless, negligent, this and that, they don't like it, and you're absolutely right. I spent, and I was hired by the insurance company many times to sit with those docs and talk about it, particularly when you were talking about settlement. Uh, they thought, oh, well, they'll, this will be on my record forever, this, that, another thing. And, um, you know, it, it, it takes a lot of support from chiefs of departments and residency directors to, to give people the proper support they need to get through a suit. Yeah. For those of you who uh, basically uh, are involved in a suit now, um, I'd advise you to look up Gita Pensa. Gita is a physician who has been on Risk Management Monthly in the past. And in fact, those of you who are subscribers can go to the... Uh, she's done two issues with this. Actually, she did one with Mark Calvert, um, who um, well, you basically referred us to. And, and her... She was in a... Horrible, horrible uh, lawsuit, and the fact of the matter is, is that it was, it went on years and years and years, and she has now gotten a blog specifically focused at helping uh, clinicians deal with going through uh, malpractice suit because she's she's been there, done it, kind of thing. So Gita Pensa, G I T A, I forget the name of her uh, blog, but you can look it up; it's pretty easily found. Amo, thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. Greg, well, thank, as always. Thank you both for your time and uh, happy and safe holidays to you both. It's great seeing you guys again. Likewise. Thank you. Good to see you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.